People that are financially free think value first, cost second, the economic impact, and price third, what they pay. People that are not financially free focus on price and price alone, and unfortunately spend far too much time trying to save money, and you don't shrink your way to wealth. Instead of being in reduction, you think production, and that's a distinction. So financial is one layer, economics is another, and then financial freedom is just your state of mind and your state of being. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Garrett Gunderson. Today we're digging into cash flow versus accumulation wealth models and why if we really want to create financial and economic independence, we must focus on cash flow investing over accumulation. We're going to dig into both of those different models, the failings of the accumulation model, and some fantastic mental models that Garrett has put together through his illustrious career in the wealth creation space that can help you think about how to start creating cash flow if you're stuck in the accumulation mode. I'm very excited to have this opportunity to present Garrett on this podcast because he wrote one of my favorite personal finance books that is out there. One of my favorite books I've ever listened to, Killing Sacred Cows. If you haven't heard Killing Sacred Cows, once you're done with this interview, I really recommend that you go pick it up because there's so much knowledge in that book. You're, you're going to come away so much better from having listened to Killing Sacred Cows. He has another book that just came out, Money Unmasked. We're going to dig into the contents of that book, how he can help you identify your financial and money DNA and so much more. Get yourself to the next level and make sure you're getting advice from the right people. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com, schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Garrett Gunderson. I'm so excited to have this interview for you. We're digging into cash flow versus accumulation, and we're also going to get into discussing Garrett's upcoming book, Money Unmasked. Very excited once again. I was so excited when his folks reached out to us, and I hope you enjoy. Let's go. Garrett, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to have you on. I loved your book, Killing Sacred Cows, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, and we'll dig into where you came from. Yeah, when I was 15, I started my first business, not the most glorious business, I detailed cars. I washed them, cleaned them. My dad was a coal miner. So he'd bring these surface mine vehicles home when the bosses were in town, I'd help him out. And he's like, hey, you're not bad at this. My mom worked at a credit union, so I cleaned the repossessed vehicles. But I won $5,000 for being a young entrepreneur of the year. And, and I was like, I want to invest that money because I wanted to get out of this little coal mining town. And I thought investing would be the best way to do it. The problem was my family put cash in coffee cans and buried it in the cellar because they were scared of investing and even that term. And so when I was 18, I finally didn't have to have a custodian sign off and I made a bad investment, my first investment. Basically was shown this thing called VUL, which was putting, buying a life insurance policy with mutual funds known as separate accounts in it. They showed me 18% a year, which is ridiculous and illegal. 
And fortunately, three months in, I had an econometrics class. I ran some Monte Carlo simulations to see what the likelihood that this would pan out. And it turned out not only would it not get the return they said, it was likely to fail. It had a 97.8% chance of failure because of the fees when the market goes down. Because the market goes down, your fees go up, and it creates this double dip. And so I was like, okay. And then I just started asking more questions. And one of my friends, she's like, well, I have a friend that her dad's in finance and I got an internship when I was 19 years old. But even in that, I was peddling mutual funds still. I was peddling life insurance until the year 2000 when the market went down. And I was like, hey, this sucks. I'm not going to tell people they're in it for the long haul or that the market's on sale because they already bought. And I, it was like, I didn't want to look at them and give them that same garbage. And that's when I really started my financial career. For every month, for 26 months, I flew somewhere, used my young age to be able to in, you know, get to know the best minds and interview them. And I found out, yeah, I wrote a book, What Would the Rockefellers Do? I found out what the Rockefellers were doing it was very different than the rest of the world. And I, so I was like, how do I start implementing this for people who aren't already wealthy or came from a small town like me? And so that's how it kind of started. And then I built a financial services firm that I sold in 2021 that really served primarily entrepreneurs. And it was all about how do they keep more of what they make without budgeting? How do they improve their cash flow? How do they discover their investor DNA? So they invest in things that are cash flow investments versus accumulation-based investments that are high, highly risky and not preparing them for the life they want. It was really about how do they become financially independent where they have assets creating cash flow to cover their expenses so they have choice of what they do day to day and they can swing for the fences in their vision. So in Killing Sacred Cows, I listened to the audiobook a couple of years ago. I definitely recommend our listeners go and pick up the book. And we're going to talk about the book that you have that when this goes live, will it just come out. But in the book, you talk about the cash flow wealth model versus the accumulation wealth model. And I believe that the one we're taught or we're generally told to pursue is the accumulation model. Can we dig a bit into the, the faults of the accumulation model and talk about why we should think about cash flow? from our investments. Yeah, so the accumulation model is predicated upon this dogma that the way that you get wealthy is three functions. And people say these three things all the time. The first function is it takes money to make money, which is interesting because it never takes Wall Street's money to make money. <laughs> it takes your money for them to make money. That's the, that's the crazy thing. So that's the first thing is how much money can you put away? The second thing is they say, High risk equals high return. Which which drunken Wall Street idiot came up with this idea? Risk means chance of losing. So how does increasing our chance of losing actually help us win? It doesn't. The riskiest thing you could do is hand your money over to someone you don't know that they've only made movies about them robbing anyone they hand money to. Like, would we trust Wall Street with any other business? Wall Street daycare? I'm not taking my <laughs> kids there. You know what I'm saying? But they're going to babysit my money? I don't think so. So the first thing is it takes money to make money is what they tell us. Then they say high risk equals high return. And then they say, you're in it for the long haul. That sounds like the worst CrossFit workout ever that someone posts. I just pushed cinder blocks up a hill for my whole life. Like the, the money times rate times time is not the best way to create wealth because they're trying to convince people if you could save 10% of your income and chase a 10% return in the market and then wait for 30 years, maybe one day, someday you can finally enjoy the life that you want when you're too old to enjoy it. Because everything in that notion is scrimp, sacrifice, save, defer, set it and forget it, invest early, often, and always. That is all garbage, neglecting the very thing that they're supposed to have when they retire. And so think about this. When people retire with accumulation, 
they don't even understand cash flow. And now they retire, they stop have a direct, you know, control over the outcome of their income. And now they're subject to three things that are confiscate their wealth. Number one, what if interest rates go down when they're retired? Less income. What if taxes go up? We're 31.4 trillion in debt as I say this. Could easily happen. Number three, we've witnessed inflation confiscating people's wealth. So people are retired and now they have to look and see what the markets are doing that they can't control or even understand. And it's a travesty because they're sold it as a retirement dream and it's a nightmare. And so ultimately, they spend their whole time contributing to a plan with no cash flow in mind. And now when the stakes are the highest, where they aren't working anymore, they're supposed to create cash flow with something they don't understand how to do it with. Isn't that an insane model? That's the accumulation model. That's what people are being taught. Wall Street, who can't be trusted, plans that don't kick off cash flow for your entire life. And then you're just supposed to live up the interest. Guess what? You live up the interest and they get to still keep money on the nest egg and in, earn a fee off that in a perpetuity. Terrible model. Failing miserably. 95% of people in accumulation are not financially independent at age 65, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. 95% failure rate. You getting on that airplane? I'm not getting on Wall Street Airlines. They'll make, it goes up, it goes down, but sometimes it crashes. Or most of the time it crashes. I'm sorry, I'm opting out of that system. Totally agree. And I love the the passion with which you you say these things. And you're absolutely right about taxes, inflation, everything else around that. But okay, we've seen the faults of the accumulation model. But okay, there's this other way, building cash flow. But you know, how in the world should we go about thinking about building cash flow now rather than you know just building up a pile of assets that we're going to sell off? Hopefully, we die before the pile's gone. I've got a five-part framework on how you to consider cash flow, how to create economic independence. And so the very first thing is to help with cash flow before you do anything else, recover cash. There's four I's to recover cash. Number one, the IRS, stop tipping the government, especially entrepreneurs. 90 plus percent entrepreneurs pay more in taxes than they need to. Number two, interest. Negotiate the best interest rates. Reallocate funds. If your underperforming funds are earning less than what you're paying in interest, you reallocate and free up cash flow. Or simply renegotiate your interest rates because all debts are negotiable if you have the right credit score, collateral, if you have the right cash flow reporting or connections. So first thing was IRS. Second thing is interest. Third thing is investments. A lot of people have investments that have a myriad of fees. I see people in IRAs and 401ks, which I'm not an advocate or fan of at all. But there's a huge amount of fees in there. And even if they're in funds, they're paying 12B1 fees, which are marketing fees, expense ratios, which have been proven to underperform even index funds. So people are paying all these fees thinking, oh, it's only a percent. Well, here's the difference. If 100 grand over 30 years earns 10%, grows 1.74 million. If there's enough fees that only earns 9.2%, it grows to 1.4 million. That less than 1% fee costs the person 340 grand. Stop thinking in small percentages and think of actual numbers. And then the fourth part of recovering cash, duplicate coverages or improper structure with insurance. Only insure the catastrophic and transfer risk and then retain or don't insure the non-essential. Like if you can write a check for it today and go to sleep tonight, no reason to insure it. And most people have low deductibles and they just do that improperly. So number one, recover cash. That's the first way to think of cash flow. Take that additional cash. And then engineer your wealth. What's your monthly expenditures? What would you have to earn in cash flow 
that didn't require you to go to work to be financially independent. Reverse engineer that. Then the third step is become a cash flow investor. Where could you invest to create cash flow that's accelerating your investment income? Because if you become economically independent, rather than saving 10% of your income to try to earn 10%, if you're economically independent, you can take 100% of your income and buy more assets because your income, your expenses are covered by real, you know, investment income. So accelerate investment income. Look for lazy assets that don't produce cash flow and turn them into cash flowing assets. The fourth is, especially if you're an entrepreneur, scale your business revenue. Could you invest in infrastructure or marketing? I call it the three P's, people, process, or procedure that will allow you to create more leverage in your business and grow that asset instead of confiscating that wealth and putting it in the market. Then the fifth one is to make it count. You're your greatest asset, not a stock, bond, or piece of real estate. So invest back into you and your skill sets. See, I don't believe risk is in the investment. It's in the investor. So are you a good investor? When people say, is, is real estate the investment? I'm like, I don't know. What kind of investor are you? What type of real estate are you doing? Are you just putting it in a REIT that you know nothing about? Or are you acquiring an apartment complex that you know how to convert to condos and sell off individually? Or that you know how to do a seller financing or lease option deal? Or you get a bidding process? There's like, you have to understand what you're investing in. And so if you make it count, you invest back in yourself, enjoy life along the way, and then you have more to give. You become more of a value creator. So recover cash, engineer wealth, accelerate investment income, strate- you know, uh, scale business revenue, and then make it count. This is the key to cash flow. Think about how you can keep as much as you make without cutting back. Think about how you could turn your assets into cash flow machines and invest aligned with your investor DNA. Investor DNA is your core values, competencies, and drivers. And you focus before you diversify. People prematurely diversify. They spread themselves thin in a bunch of investments they know nothing about, which is risky, rather than getting clear about what their lane is. For example, getting really clear if you're a fix and flip guy in real estate, do fix and flips until you've really got the team and maximize the education before you go a tiny bit of commercial, tiny bit of residential, some duplex and four. And then all of a sudden, when there's an economic change, you're not prepared because you weren't looking at enough deal flow and creating enough expertise and then you are prematurely diversified. And when we add premature before something, it's not a good thing. <laughs> like premature babies, they need to keep cooking in there for a little bit longer. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what everyone else thought when I said premature, <laughs> but anyway. So I note that you say economically independent rather than financially independent. Yeah. A lot of people, pretty much everybody, myself included, say financially independent rather than economically independent. Why is that? Why do you say economically independent? I think it's a little bit interchangeable. I don't, you know, but semantics matter. Like all wealth is built through conversation. So economically versus financial is if you're financially independent, you're good today. Economically independent measures inflation, interest rate fluctuations, and tax fluctuations that I talked about. So you've got more contingencies and buoyancy. So there's a little bit more strength. I also think there's a distinction a distinction between financial independence and financial freedom. See, I think the financial industry has bastardized the word financial freedom. And they've ruined it. You're not financially free because you have a certain amount of money in a bank account because they could just add $4.5 trillion to the balance sheet with the Federal Reserve. They don't have to issue real treasuries and they don't have to print money. They just change the balance sheet, which lowers the value of your money. Financial freedom is when money is no longer the primary reason or excuse you would do or not do do something. It's a consideration, it's just not the consideration. Most people, they focus on price and price alone, but there are certain things that are high price, low cost. 
right? The right accountant could be higher price but lower cost because you pay less in taxes. The right airline, because they make it to the end, that it's a higher price if they have, you know, better pilots, better maintenance, can you know, better airplanes. I don't want to be chintzy on the price and find out that, you know, one one gust and we're in trouble. So there's price is the first measure of financial freedom that people to get stuck on. The second is cost. Cost is the net economic impact, but the third is value. Values are overall feeling of satisfaction and enjoyment. People that are financially free think value first, cost second, the economic impact, and price third, what they pay. People that are not financially free focus on price and price alone and unfortunately spend far too much time trying to save money and you don't shrink your way to wealth. Instead of being in reduction, you think production. And that's a distinction. So financial is one layer, economics is another and then financial freedom is just your state of mind and your state of being. Nice. Okay. So I'd like to dig a bit more into the entrepreneurship and business ownership side of things and growing your income, investing in your business to grow the income from your business. Yeah. How do you think about identifying the higher, highest leverage places to invest capital in a business? Because it's Honestly, it's scary. It can be scary to invest money in your business because there's no real guarantee of return. If I put money in a bank account, FDIC insured, yeah, it might lose to uh, inflation over time, but the money's probably still going to be there unless I get robbed. But on the business ownership front, I'm not really sure if I'm going to make a return on that. It's scary. So how do you think about identifying high leverage opportunities and working through the mental you know, hurdles of getting yourself there to make the investment? I have a really good friend, Rich Christensen, that wrote Zigzag Principle, and it's a really good book on business. And he says, the first thing you focus on in business is the thing you're saying, cash flow first. If you focus on cash flow first, see, a lot of startups don't focus on cash flow at all. They're just trying to exit. That's highly speculative, highly risky. But if you get cash flow first and think how to be more resourceful and how to actually have your customers, like the best way to reduce risk in a business with cash flow, let's say I have a new business idea. Well, Maybe it's something that I could go out and, you know, like we saw this with Indiegogo and, and you know, Kickstarter and other kind of, you know, the, that funding mechanism of crowdfunding. They actually got their money up front to build the product rather than getting an investor. And so now they actually created the demand up front. But see, that's focusing on cash flow. That's focusing on cash first. So zigzag is you go cash flow first before you start building too many resources. You've even seen this with the concept around minimal viable product. So my philosophy is, if you don't have the mental capital, ideas, knowledge, wisdom, insight, strategies, and tools, and the right relationship capital, people, networks, organizations, mentors, friends, and family, you don't have a business. You have speculation. And people leverage money before they leverage mental and relationship capital. And when you have mental and relationship capital, I call it the cycle of creation. And this is actually part of my book, Money Unmasked, so I'm glad you asked the question because you didn't even know because the book isn't out yet, right? So we start with an idea. But we add mental and relationship capital, so it becomes a concept. It's concrete. It's shared. That's crowdsourcing. It's a now a con- it's a concept. You can read about it. It doesn't exist yet. It's an idea. But then you build a framework, people, networks, you know, organ- like team that can actually build this. And when you're moving from concept to framework, you can pre-sell. Think about it. People have already bought Super Bowl tickets before the Super Bowl. When I was doing a comedy tour, people bought the tickets before they knew if I was funny a lot of times. Like there's so many things in business if we pre-sell, we've created the demand and the cash flow that then funds it versus raising funds or versus using our own funds. 
So using the cycle of creation, it eventually becomes a product, service, or experience in the marketplace. Concept, idea, framework, experience. You actually have people pay earlier in the cycle, and then you use the money to keep going through the cycle to improve the product and listen to your customers. So you're not building in, the, in a guesswork and hoping it works. Your customers say what they want, and they pay you money along the way. I just did this. I created a program called Ascension. So people do one-on-one immersions with me at my cabin, and they're like, what next? And I didn't really have an answer for years. I'm like, well, so I got 12 founding members that pay $1,000 a month for a $2,000 program. They give me feedback. They, they become endorsements, and they become referral centers in exchange for a discounted amount. So they know I'm building it with them. I pre-sold my first book that you listened to, Killing Sacred Cows, 22,000 copies before it was released. I sold it to them. By saying, I'm going to give you these bonuses. I'm going to give you these like founder benefits that are exclusive to you and direct access to me if you buy a certain number of books. I'm doing it with Money Unmasked right now. Just sold 100 copies before I got on this with you because I'm going to speak in January, even though we're recording this much before that. So this is the concept of how we reduce risk with intelligence and cash flow. You're teaching cash flow. It's the same thing we got to teach to business owners because often they fall in love with ideas that their customers don't love. They get tired because they don't hire. They don't think about how they can transfer that business wealth to personal wealth. But you know what? Even if four out of five businesses fell in five years, 95% of financial plans and accumulation fell. So it's still a little bit better odds. But if they go through zigzag principle or my money on mass book, it should drastically reduce that risk because of how you manage cash flow and profit up front. Okay. You sold your business in 2021. Right. What did it feel like to have that sale of your business? And did you know what your next move was going to be? Yeah, I was already getting in a place with my business where it didn't represent who I was as much anymore. It represented numbers and, and it represented like financial details and it represented like consistency for someone that wants to just get their financial house in order, which is a highly important thing in today's world. But I like to be more creative. I like to write. I like to do comedy. I like to do a theatrical keynote. I like to, you know, like it started to represent kind of who I was more than who I am. And so I already had been doing comedy as a, as a hobby. But then this Hollywood agent was like, I think you could really do comedy around money. And so I was really gravitating towards that. And I tried to do both. And what I found was I just was losing the interest in that business. Because I didn't like management and operations and hiring and firing and, and you know, the, all the financials and, and making, you know, improvements around margin. But the person that I sold the business to loved that. And so it was a good timing. So I decided to sell in November of 2020 and immediately started writing my comedy special and preparing it and filmed it in April. So I was so entrenched in that for five months. I didn't even go into the office. I didn't even sign the contract till June of 2021 on the sell. I just said, hey, I'm selling to you. You're my, you're my business partner. And he's, he was excited about that and wanted to take that over. And it really gave me these last two years to be super creative, write money unmasked. I wrote another book, Disrupting Sacred Cows. I wrote a children's book, did the comedy special. You know, it's just been a much more artistic expression of what I enjoy because I think entertainment's the gateway to transformation. And not many people want to be educated, but billions want to be entertained. So if I can entertain them and educate them simultaneously, it's, fun, it's more fun for me and it's more likely to reach nice. Them. So it strikes me that you live a life of abundance. You clearly have a, 
an abundance mentality, but I would hazard a guess that it wasn't always that way. You probably made that shift at some point in your life, although it seems like you're shaking your head a little bit here, so maybe I'm wrong, but can you tell us about that? No, you're right. You're right. No, you're totally right, because my great-grandfather didn't have enough money to put food on the table, so he moved from Italy to America, and he didn't have enough money to bring his wife, who was pregnant, so he's like, I'll send money back. So for seven years, they were separated while he was a goat herd living in a tent before he can get a job at a coal mine and actually get a house and have enough money to bring them out. Meets his daughter. She's seven years old. So that story permeates through my family. My family became misers, right? Like if, if people go to moneyonmass.com, they can see what, what their money persona is. But my family was a misers. And I had that in my own life where I was miserly for a long time where like I just held on to everything. I lived in scarcity. Like my wife and I lived in this crappy apartment, even though I could afford something nicer. I bought her a phone case that didn't fit her phone for Christmas because it was in the clearance bin. I told her, hey, your parents said we could live in their basement rent-free. She's like, sex-free if you think that's where I'm living. <laughs> I was a cheapskate, man. I was a cheapskate. And it took me, you know, what I write about to heal from that and to overcome that. And it, it was, it took years. It, it, I mean, there were, there were moments that were inflection points, but there was still like this almost like at a cellular level, these belief systems I had to overcome. And I think a lot of people are stuck in scarcity thinking it's the only way. And I'm glad that I had the right mentors and faced my own situations and, you know, was willing to be intellectually honest because otherwise, you know, this belief of you don't shrink your way to wealth, I might've been in that belief of spending 10 hours to save 10 bucks. You know, I know people that will spend so much time to save money at the expense of making more, adding more value, serving more people and solving bigger problems. Yes, absolutely. Over the past summer, we had a gas station nearby that gave like a $2 off sale on gas and folks would sit in line for an hour to get maybe 10 bucks off a gallon, whatever, more than a little more than 10 bucks off a tank. Right. Less than minimum wage, probably to, to you know, huge waste of time, your most most valuable asset. But, you know, so your mindset can be changed. You can shift into abundance. I love that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Garrett, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Great. Great. I'm ready. I first one, ready. what is the best deal you've ever done? I think my first deal I did in real estate, even though the numbers aren't huge, the return was ridiculous. So I'm like young. I'm like 20. And my brother-in-law is like, hey, he wasn't my brother-in-law at the time. We're just friends. He's like, hey, man, I can get this house under contract. I just need $25,000 for the earnest, but I already have a buyer. So I'll just give you back 50 grand. Just give me 25 grand and within a few months it was like a 400 percent annualized return it was a good and bad deal because this i guess it's it, the second deal was good too because i did no money down used my wife's credit bought a property that for someone was going to lose the property rented it out to them and then we sold it back to them and i split the proceeds it, it went up 100 percent in the two years and then i got half the, so those were two really good deals the problem was I wasn't the smart one. I was just the lucky one in the timing. So I thought I was smarter than I was, which led to my my bad deal. Okay, yeah. great. So we had the best investment. You're leading us into the second one. I love it. Second one, what is the worst deal you've ever done? So I was I was going to be a 45% owner of this 45,000 square foot building. And we are talking about it and the 55% owner is like, hey, to get financing because we're doing a construction loan and everything, it's just going to be easier to put it in my credit. And then we'll, we'll just 
once the the loan closes, then we'll go and do the LLC and you'll be 45%. So basically I was like, whatever, you're you're managing the build out. I'm putting the renters in. I was going to move into the building. I mean, this building won architectural awards for Utah and Idaho. It won a national award. It was a, a work of art. But then he had a fund and he started to take new investors' money to pay Ooh. old investors' interest. And you know, that's a Ponzi scheme. And so I ended up losing a lot of money because of that building that I put money down and that I had, you know, I ended up having to talk to the trustee to get my furniture, my artwork. They made me prove out because he was fabricating saying that I owed rent, but I didn't, you know, and I had to, but the burden proof was on me. So I ended up going to court over the whole thing. It it was, it cost me $50,000 in attorney fees, let alone the you know, millions that I lost on the deal. So that was the worst deal. And plus I loved the building. So it was really hard to just walk away and and leave it when the whole thing got taken over by a trustee, when this guy declared bankruptcy and that guy went to jail. So that was a pretty bad deal. That was, that was a 2008 debacle. I came out of it with some scars and a lot of gray hair. The Utah securities division got involved. I went and met with them. So I didn't get in any trouble because, but he had raised money and unfortunately like i had put a bunch of money in there towards the building and some people that i introduced him to put money in there the good news is i never got paid on it the bad news is i lost money they lost money and i lost a lot of sleep and i went to court i won in court but you don't do you ever really win is the question you know it was that was a pretty rough deal it was pretty rough deal my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing I think in investing in businesses, make money on the buy. Like there's a lot of ways that you can make money from day one, including cash flow or including bailing someone out that is beyond their investor DNA that would have just probably lose everything. So they get something, but you then can add value to it and make a whole lot more. But really it's the no, the more we say no, the more the right yeses show up in investing. People move too quickly. And they get burned because a lot of investments are a lot easier to get into than to get out of. So that might be kind of two lessons I just said. And, and I always like to have like a due diligence team that's impartial so they can just tell me the things when I have rose colored glasses and think everything's going to work out ba- you know, well. They could tell me what could go wrong and kind of protect me. So even though it's not always fun, I like to always meet with attorneys and look at everything because when I don't, it's usually a lot more expensive and a lot more costly down the road. Nice. Well, before we go here, can you tell us a bit about your book that will have just come out, Money Unleashed, and you know what the book's about, yeah. lessons in it, everything. Yeah. Sorry, Money Unmasked. Money Sorry, unmasked. I said Money Unleashed. That's Money. all right. Like, like, I like it. Maybe that's the follow-up, <laughs> Money Unleashed. That. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's all good. So Money Unmasked is really about what governs our success and failure when it comes to money. These This hidden kind of philosophy of our money persona and there's a shadow side which is what drags us down and there's a winning side which helps us to accelerate and when we learn other people's money persona that we're not and learn to collaborate with them we can get further ahead with less risk but it's also recover cash that i talked about it's also how to recover and and be really diligent with your time so you design a life that you never want to retire from and create the win before you begin so you enjoy the process along the way so there's there's a lot to the book I've, i've put seven years of my life and probably a lot of money when you think of all the lessons I learned that I'm sharing in here. But, you know, I think if you like killing sacred cows like you did, I think you'll like this even more. And hopefully people will check it out. If they buy it at moneyunmasked.com, they can get 
a little bit of my comedy because it's hard to find that because we're in a distribution deal right now with my comedy special. They can also get a guide to really dive deep into the money personas to figure out like what their persona is, how it works, the best questions to ask, how to find the other persona. So, and there's another surprise bonus if they go to the website. So there's three bonuses I think are worth as much, if not more than the book, because I'm just really trying to entice people to, to grab this and improve their life. Awesome. I love it. Well, I really did enjoy Killing Sacred Cows. We dug into just one aspect of that book today a little bit, and I'm sure that Money Unmasked is going to be uh, just as great, if not better, like you're saying. So thanks so much for joining us today. If folks want to find a, find you on the internet anywhere you know other than the book, where can they track you down? Social media, that kind of thing. Yeah, like I have a YouTube channel, so youtube.com forward slash Garrett Gunderson TV, or you can just put in an internet browser, garrett.live. It'll take you there. GarrettGunderson.com. I have a blog like it's 2006. I, I personally write it. There's no chat GPT doing it. It's got a lot more emotion and vulnerability. And I even shared a little bit of the story I shared here that was one of my more painful stories of going to court, even though I won in there. So, and then there's also the money persona quiz. If you do GarrettGunderson.com forward slash quiz, and that's free. So, you know, you'll just have to give me your email. And every now and again, I'll tell you about my blog because I'm in love with this blog and I keep pushing it on people, but they seem to be enjoying it. Awesome. Well, I am going to do that this evening once we're done. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and do not forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>